Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show Today, U.S. stocks extended their losing streak to nine consecutive days. We haven't had a losing streak this long since 1980. That was 36 years ago. You know, eight consecutive down days. That last took place in the financial crisis year of 2008. So we had tied that yesterday, and now we won bettered it, and we're back to the longest streak since 1980. Now, the record for consecutive down days is 12. Now, the last time that happened was in 1966. And if you don't know what the significance was of 1966, that was the peak of a bull market that ended in 1966 And the bear market that ensued went on for 16 years in nominal terms and much longer than that in real terms because the Dow hit 1,000 in 1966 and it didn't get above 1,000 until 1982. And of course, adjusted for inflation, 1,000 in 1982 wasn't even close to 1,000 in 1966, certainly in terms of gold, right? Because gold was $35 an ounce in 1966, and in 1982, it was probably about $500. Uh, So in gold terms, the Dow was slaughtered during those 16 years. You know, even adjusted for the CPI, I don't think we got back to 1,000 until towards the end of the 1990 stock market bubble. 
that's how long it took uh, to achieve the, the real levels that we had in 1966. So that's when we had a 12 consecutive down days. Now, we'll see. I mean, we may well be down on Monday, and so that would make it 10. And if we're down on Tuesday, 11, and if Trump wins, then we'll probably be down on Wednesday. So we'll see if we can set this record. It's rather a dubious record. Gold, on the other hand, was going in an opposite direction. It managed to finish the week with a small gain, but nonetheless closing above 1300 closing out the week at 1304 That's the highest weekly close in some time. Silver also eked out a small gain of $0.08 cents at 1841 The dollar continued its losing streak of late, with the dollar index closing below 97 with a 96 handle. 969 was where the dollar index closed out the week. So as stocks are weakening, so is the dollar. Gold is strengthening. But what does this portend for the presidential election? Because typically when the incumbent party wins, which in this case would be Hillary, because even though Barack Obama is not up for re-election, he is a Democrat. And so Hillary represents the same party. And normally when the incumbent wins, which is what everybody expects, the stock market is rising prior to the election. Normally when the stock market is falling, it's an indication that they are going to oust the incumbent party in favor of whichever party was out of power. So based on the stock market, it looks like Trump is uh, getting ready for an upset win which, of course, would be even worse for the stock market. But is the stock market falling because the markets are worried about a Trump presidency? Or is it simply falling because it doesn't matter? Because even if Clinton wins, which is what the markets anticipate, it's a bubble and the Fed is threatening to raise interest rates uh, in December, which is their next meeting. And so maybe the stock market's going down for that reason. But, of course, even if people were still undecided, the weakness in the stock market going into the election could cause some people to maybe vote Trump because they're worried that the bubble is bursting. And of course, as I said in my last podcast, the Democrats want voters going into the booth in as good a mood as possible. And the stock market tanking, you know, maybe the day before the election day, if we get some kind of big sell-off on Monday, is not the the kind of... Uh, image that Hillary wants voters taking with them into the voting booth. I suppose she just wants them thinking of Donald Trump molesting women and voting for her, uh, despite all of the allegations uh, coming out against her. And despite an economy that, you know, despite today's jobs numbers, which at least, you know, on the surface, uh, were a little shy of estimates. But the Obama administration is still out there touting these numbers as somehow being good. We did get the non-farm payroll number that came out uh, this morning. And this, of course, is the last official look at the labor market before the Tuesday election. So this is going to be in all the news stories tonight. And of course, it gives President Obama's people some talking points. I saw uh, Labor Secretary on uh, television today trying to talk about how great this jobs number is and how it validates all the good, high-paying jobs that have been created 
during the Obama recovery. I mean, this thing was pure spin because the jobs data doesn't uh, confirm that at all. But the numbers that came out, they were looking for 178,000 jobs. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, the conspiratorial uh, element here, I was thinking that maybe the number would be big, right? Because this is it. This is the last number before the election. And clearly they would like to see a larger number, a higher number. But then I thought, well, you know, but a, a number too high could really cause the stock market to tank. After all, the Fed is in hiking mode and a really strong job number would only solidify the idea that the Fed is going to raise rates, which already seems pretty solid. I mean, the probability is maybe 80 percent, maybe a really strong job number, and it would have gone up to 90 percent or something like that. So that would have been problematic. So maybe they just wanted one that was kind of Goldilocks, not too strong, uh, not too weak, just enough that they could, uh, you know, talk about it as if it was a positive. And that's really the kind of number we got. We got 161,000 jobs, which was a little bit below the consensus, but they did revise uh, the prior month up. So the net effect was, you know, I guess it was kind of in line, maybe a slightly better uh, than what some had been looking for. Although I know the whisper number, there are a lot of people that thought maybe we'd get a 200,000 number and we, we didn't do that. The official unemployment rate, though, did tick down. That's that's good, right, for the president. Back down below 5% at 4.9%. The labor force participation rate also ticked down to 62.8%. Hours work stayed the same, but wages were up a bit. And this was also something that they were taking credit for. Not only did we get a 0.4 increase in average hourly earnings, which was a little bit better than the 0.3% that they were expecting, but they went back and revised the prior month from up 0.2 to up 0.3. So the president taking credit for American workers finally getting their long overdue, well-deserved raise. Of course, beneath the surface, once again, The picture is not quite so rosy. First of all, you know, when you look at the household survey, you'll see a mass exodus again of workers out of the workforce. 425,000 workers said adios to the labor market. Uh, We now have 94,609,000 able-bodied Americans who are no longer part of that labor force. And of course, you know, the uh, labor secretary was trying to blame the participation rate on the retirement of the baby boom. Yeah, nice try. The problem is the baby boom is too broke to retire. They're working longer than ever. The mass exodus from the labor force is young people, people in their 20s and 30s. They're not retiring. They just, what the, What's retiring is their aspirations to have a job. They're just, you know, thrown in the towel before they even step in the ring. That's what's going on in in this market. And nobody wants to acknowledge that. But even more so is the uh, multiple job holders soaring to a new high for this so-called recovery. This is the number of people working two or more jobs. Hey, some of these guys have three or four jobs. And in fact, if you look at the household survey, it confirms that we lost 103,000 full-time jobs. And we gained 90,000 new part-time jobs. And, of course, a lot of these part-time jobs are being worked by people who already had another part-time job. And, of course, you know, the higher-paying jobs, we lost 7,000 manufacturing jobs. 
Those are the jobs we need. We lost another 2,000 jobs in mining and logging. These are productive jobs. So that's 9,000 new Trump voters, right? Uh, and a lot of these guys might have been uh, card-carrying Democrats, labor union guys, but now they're out of work. And so Donald Trump is the only one that seems to feel their pain and is promising some kind of relief. I mean, all Hillary is promising is more of the same, and nobody wants that except Wall Street, right? They want more of the same because the same has been good to them. Uh, but it hasn't been good to uh, the 9,000 people who lost their jobs in manufacturing and mining, nor is it really good to a lot of these workers who are hobbling together two or three crappy part-time jobs. You know, again, Zero Hedge put that chart up on their website about waiters and bartenders versus manufacturing. And since 2014, they point out that we've added 547,000 waiter and bartending jobs. And during that same period of time, We've lost 36,000 manufacturing jobs. I wonder how many of those former manufacturers, you know, each guy is maybe working two or three of those waiter bartender jobs. You know, also Zero Hedge pointed out something with some graphs that I've been talking about, and that's been the collapse in the restaurant industry. I mean, the restaurant industry has had a tough year uh, looking at what's happening to a lot of the stocks of these operators. Our earnings are going down. And so if Americans are not eating out as often because they can't afford it, right? So if the restaurant industry is having such a tough time, why are they hiring so many people? And the reality is they're not. They're not hiring so many people. They're just hiring so many part-time people. That's why the number is so big, because they're completely transitioning their workforce from full-time workers to part-time workers. And that's why the numbers are so big. And that's how, why this whole thing is a lie. And when the labor secretary goes on television, he's, he's spreading fiction if he's talking about this robust economy where we're getting all these jobs. And in fact, you know, still a lot of these jobs that the government assumes were created are there as a result of this birth death model. I mean, that's there every month. And there's no actual proof that any of these jobs exist. They're just guesstimating it. And what they mean by birth death, if, if you don't know, is they're referring to the creation or destruction of companies, right? Every month, new companies are started up. And of course, every month, other companies are shutting down because they failed. Well, the reality is, and this has been going on for a while, more companies are failing than are starting up. So you would assume that the birth death assumptions would assume more jobs dying than being born. But that's never the case. They always think that more jobs are being created by companies that are starting up than are being lost by companies that are calling it quits. But I doubt that's the case. I mean, I think that's a case of wishful thinking. I think the statisticians who believe the economy is growing just assume that a growing economy is resulting in more businesses starting up than winding down. But since the economy really isn't growing, since I think we're actually in a recession, it makes sense that in this recessionary environment, more businesses would be shutting down than starting up. And in fact, that is the case. Yet that is not the case when it comes to these birth death assumptions. So I think all these numbers are nonsense. In fact, there was some guy on, on CNBC this morning that was pointing out how, you know, the GDP numbers are so low and the productivity numbers are so low. He said that does it really make sense that if businesses are hiring all these workers to do all this work and they're not productive and they're not adding to the GDP? He said, no, 
Therefore, the productivity numbers must be wrong, the GDP numbers must be wrong, and the jobs numbers must be right, because employers wouldn't be adding all these workers if the workers weren't productive, because why hire them? So he wants to assume all those numbers are wrong, and the only number that's right is the jobs number. Uh-uh, I would rather make the assumption that all the other numbers are right, and the outlier is a job number, and the truth is employers aren't hiring all these people because the job numbers are not legitimate. The job numbers simply reflect the preponderance of part-time work over full-time work and the bias in the statisticians at assuming companies are starting up when, in fact, more companies are shutting down. So that is the dubious number that should be suspect. I mean, people who want to grab onto the jobs numbers as if they're legit and then use that as a reason to dismiss all the other numbers that have far less you know, bias in them uh, than this one. And, of course, again, the GDP numbers, I mean, it's actually worse than that because of the ridiculous deflators that are not capturing the full extent to which prices are rising and so the real GDP number is actually a lot lower than the numbers that are being officially reported. And again, that still jives with me with these bogus jobs reports that don't reflect legitimate full-time jobs being created, but really disguise the overwhelming uh, number of full-time jobs that are being lost, but are just being replaced uh, by part-time jobs. But, you know, the most ridiculous article I read today I read it in Market Watch and I put it up on my Facebook page. And it was an article written about a speech that I guess Larry Summers gave yesterday, which I, I didn't hear anything about until I read this story today. And the title of the article, Fed Independence Should Be Scrapped Given Economic Challenges. So, first of all, the Fed is independent really in name only. I mean, it, it, in reality, you know, it's working hand in glove with the government. So, you know, it's not taking its independence seriously, unfortunately. It's acting as if it were part of the government. But what Summers says is, look, let's just drop the act. We want to make sure that the Fed is always cooperating with the government. So let's get rid of their independence and make sure they always work together toward a mutual goal, which is the worst thing that you can possibly have. Now, what Summers says is he says, you know, at one point, it made sense to have an independent central bank. He says, you know, back in the 1970s, we needed an independent central bank to fight inflation because, you know, politicians, there were some politicians that thought, you know, inflation could create a benefit, a short-term benefit, and we needed the central bank to kind of push against that because they were thinking long term about the, the negative consequences of inflation. And so back then we needed some checks and balances, right? We needed an independent central bank uh, to kind of temper the propensity of politicians to want more inflation. But somehow we no longer need an independent central bank now because now we really do need inflation. This is basically what Summers is saying, although he's not saying it's inflation what we need. He's saying we need growth, but he's saying we're only going to get growth if we print a lot of money, which is inflation. He says that because the economy is weak and we don't have enough aggregate demand, we need the government to stimulate the economy and not worry about inflation like, you know, it might have been worrying about the 1970s because we've got this new kind of problem. And so in this new environment where we need more money printing, see, what he said is that, you know, the government needs to print a lot of money. We need to really sell 
long-term bonds. We need, we need to be able to borrow for 30 years. We have to you know, lock in these low interest rates. And of course, the only reason long-term rates are so low is because the government is not trying to borrow for 30 years because nobody is dumb enough to lend the money for 30 years other than the Fed. The reality is the Fed has already bought up all these long-term bonds through Operation Twist. But I guess um, Summers is worried that if the deficits really shoot up or if the government wants to start issuing 30-year bonds instead of 30-day bills, that the Fed might not cooperate and therefore interest rates would rise and that would counteract what the Fed is trying to accomplish. And see, Summers is saying we want to get the full benefits of this inflationary monetary policy. We want to make sure the Fed can run huge deficits and sell 30-year treasuries without interest rates rising. So we want to make sure the Federal Reserve monetizes all this debt. And this is all a good thing. You know, the reason that we're supposed to have an independent central bank is to prevent precisely what Summers claims we need. The idea is that we don't want governments to be able to run up big deficits and then monetize them because then you have a propensity to keep running up debt. You want to have an independent central bank that will provide a check to government deficit spending because if governments want to run big deficits and they don't control the central bank and the central bank refuses to monetize the debt, then interest rates will rise sharply and that'll put an end to the borrowing. What Summers wants to do is make sure that the government can borrow to its heart's content. And think about this, because we already have, what, $20 trillion worth of national debt, right, of bonded debt with an independent central bank. So despite the independence, we've been able to accumulate $20 trillion of debt. Of course, this is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I'm not talking about all the unfunded stuff. I'm just talking about these bonds. And now Summers says, look, you know, we need to really start issuing debt. And so we need to get rid of the independent central bank so that we have, you know, no no breaks on the debt train. Well, if we accumulated $20 trillion in debt with an independent central bank, even if it was independent in name only— Imagine how much more debt we will be able to accumulate when we drop the pretense of independence and we simply merge the Federal Reserve into the U.S. Treasury so that there is no limit at all to how much debt the government can accumulate. Of course, this is what they want to do. They're already laying this foundation because they can't let interest rates go up. They can't stop printing money. And they're a little bit worried that maybe the Fed won't sign on uh, to this to this deal. But, you know, I don't know why they're worried because I see no indication that the Federal Reserve won't cooperate. I mean, certainly not a Yellen Fed. I mean, she's already talking about it now by letting the economy run hot right? High pressure economy, whatever kind of nonsense they want to come up to describe more inflation. But this is what they're going to do. And maybe, you know, the reason Summers is talking about this is because, oh, the Fed is still talking about hiking rates uh, instead of, uh, you know, doing more QE or, or cutting rates. But, you know, it doesn't matter what they're talking about. That's part of their plan. What are they doing? They're not doing anything. And of course, if they need to, they're going to cooperate. I mean, you know, why, you know, get rid of the cover of an independent central bank when you've already got the benefits of a central bank doing exactly what you want, yet you still can pretend that they're independent because the pretense of independence is helping to maintain the integrity of the currency and of the whole process. And I don't know why people are still so stupid to fall for this, but it would certainly be counterproductive for the government to remove 
uh, that phony pretense. Because if they come right out and publicly admit that there's no independence, well, then that's it. Right. Well, now people will really be worried about runaway deficits and runaway inflation and debt monetization. They should be worried about it now, but they're not because for some reason they actually believe that the Fed is independent and that the Fed would actually fight inflation and raise interest rates. But nobody would be dumb enough to believe that if they scrapped the independence officially and they hand the printing presses over to what the Treasury Department. I mean, then, of course, there's no breaks whatsoever. I mean, do you think that we would have even had a Volcker Fed? I mean, what do you think would have happened? Now, Ronald Reagan actually supported uh, Paul Volcker and what he was doing, but he was the only one. I mean, even a lot of the members of the Republican Party, you know, were, were, were anti-Volcker. I mean, Volcker was, you know, probably public enemy number one when he was jacking rates up to 20%. But do you think if Jimmy Carter... Even though he was a point under Carter, you think Carter would have stood for that? I mean, no. So they would actually give up a lot if they actually followed what Summers is advocating, because it's already here anyway. It's just that the average currency trader or the average bond buyer is still so dumb that they haven't figured out what's actually going on. But I think that the jig's going to be up on this uh, sometime over the next couple of years, because when the Fed does have to abandon uh, the tightening cycle and they come up with some kind of excuses. And then when inflation does go out of control and they let it run hot for a while and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, the firemen, you know, keep saying that the fire is OK and it's OK if it gets a little bigger and they never try to put it out. People are going to put two and two together and realize that the, the central bank and the government are working together for a very destructive purpose. It's all political. It's all to enable more and more deficit spending. It's all to prevent politicians from having to cut spending. In fact, even in Summer's speech, he's saying we shouldn't even think about entitlement reform. We shouldn't think about budget reform. All we should think about is trying to stimulate aggregate demand by creating a bunch of inflation. And when the bond investors around the world finally wake up to what should have been obvious a long time ago, then we're going to have a crisis. Then we're going to have a currency crisis. Then we're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. And we'll see what happens. You know, we got the election coming up on Tuesday. We'll know the results, I guess, late Tuesday night, uh, early Wednesday morning. And we'll see the verdict that the market has. Obviously, the market thinks that this phony party can go on longer uh, if we elect Hillary Clinton, but that the party might end sooner if we elect Donald Trump. And as far as I'm concerned, the sooner this party ends, the better, because the sooner it ends, uh, the, you know, the less horrible the hangover will be and the less difficult the task of correcting all these mistakes will ultimately uh, become. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? 
If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.